hopefully at all of our locations, you were handed one of these uh, reference sheets. It's the Gospel versus Religion reference sheet by our friend Tim Keller. And uh, this was designed to be used as an insert in your Recalibrate journal. And I think it'll be a helpful resource for today's message as well as just pulling it out and referencing it throughout the duration of this series that we're in. And if you're joining us online, we will drop the link to the digital version of this in the chat so that way you can have access to it as well. If you have a uh, Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and find Romans chapter 2. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover in chapters 2 and 3 together today. And so I just want to jump right in uh, with this. Um, uh, not long ago, our family sat down to have a meal at a local restaurant. And uh, like many places, they're looking for extra help. And so they were shorthanded. And our waitress was doing an amazing job, but she uh, was stretched to the limit. And you could tell that she was really frazzled. And at the end of the meal, um, I said, you know, we're ready for our bill. And she said, well, some people from your church already took care of it. And I said, well, that, and I have no idea who these people are. They're totally anonymous. I still don't know. And uh, I said, man, that was very nice of them. And then I asked her this question. I just said, well, did they take care of you? Like, did they tip you? And she said, well, not really. <laughs> and I was like, oh. And then she said, um, what church do you pastor? <laughs> College Park Church, Pastor Mark Rogoff here. Hey, uh, I, I, Mark is a great friend and I love College Park, so I can use that. In fact, like Mark and I moved to Indy about the same time. And so we like to joke that over our 14 years here that we've been able to pastor a lot of the same people because there's been so much church hopping back and forth, but I'm not bitter, all right? I only joke around with people I love. Um, there is a, a book that I have in my office entitled Unchristian. And uh, in it, it presents these results of this nationwide survey that the Barna Group did by comparing um, Christians and non-Christians to see if, uh, like we know like the differences in belief, but what are the actual tangible day-to-day -day differences in the way that we live our lives? Like, like are there any? Now, um, just so you know, like they only interviewed people that could, uh, as Christians, who could articulate the gospel message, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and had affirmed their acceptance of it in order to, you know, sort of weed out the in name only Christmas and Easter folks, all right? And, uh, and, they, um, and, they were, and the survey was completely anonymous. So that way they would be honest about the way that they live their lives. And here were just a sprinkling of some of the results. The question was, what are the distinct differences between the way that we like actually live our lives? Here's what they found. Christians cussed less in public. Right, just as much in private, right? which means like when you're around your pastor or around grandma, you watch your language. Uh, less likely to recycle because, you know, Jesus is just going to beam us up out of here anyway. Uh, give a little bit more to the poor, but not much and buy fewer lottery tickets. Right there, there you have it. All right. Now, now uh, Christians, it goes on to say, we're just as likely as non-Christians to get drunk do illegal drugs or take prescription meds not prescribed to them, visit porn sites, lie to get out of a difficult situation, intentionally get revenge on someone who wronged them in the past 30 days, said something unkind, unfair, untrue about someone behind their back in the last month. In the study, 84% of non-Christians said they knew at least one believer personally, but only 15% thought that that person's lifestyle was significantly different than their own. One non-Christian described his perception of Christians as Ill, uh, illogical, mean-spirited, anti-science, hypocritical, judgmental, overly political, and people who don't play nice with those who don't believe what they believe. Now, we can certainly factor in that there is a lot of mischaracterization out there about Christians in the media and in movies, as well as sort of like the vocal minority who sort of like mess it up for the rest of us. However, we, we need to own much of this because after all, what was in the survey was quote unquote self-reported, meaning we were telling on ourselves. And I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I think that Jesus had something else entirely in mind when he went to a cross to give us a new identity, don't you? Like in Matthew chapter 28, like when Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples. 
And in John 13, when he said they would know us by our love, I think that he meant more than buy fewer lottery tickets and cuss less around Nana. See, the Bible says over and over in a variety of ways that as Christ followers, we are to be set apart from the rest of the world. But listen, in the best sense of that word, like not set apart like angry, not set apart like judgmental, like set apart, not fearful. But instead, the Bible gives us this really helpful metaphor. You are to be salt and light. Now, what does that mean? Now, for us, salt is like add flavor to food. But in the first century, salt was a preservative because they didn't have refrigeration systems and freezers. So he says, when, you, when he says be salt, he says, preserve the values of the kingdom coming. When he says be light, he means be a light in a really, really dark place. Be in the world, but not of it. Like he says, when you speak in eloquent tongues like angels, but you don't have love, you are just a clanging symbol. In fact, it is such a big theme throughout the Bible, like you just can't get away from it. And I said this last week that when God evaluates your life and mine, he's not looking for an external conformity to a religion or a set of beliefs, but an inward transformation of the heart which should then affect the way that we live and the way that we treat others. Now, uh, if you're just joining us, we are three weeks deep into this study in the book of Romans. And we're saying that Romans, what it does is it recalibrates our lives back to true north. It's this idea that all of us have these internal compasses. It's the way that we discern what is right and wrong, good and bad, just and unjust. And all of us right now, all of our compasses are calibrated in slightly different directions. We are massively divided. And we've got a perspective and an opinion on all kinds of issues under the sun. And we're pretty sure our perspective is the right one. But we at least need to acknowledge that there is a certain voice or set of voices that is informing the perspective that we have. And what we need to do as Christ followers periodically, more and more increasing in these days, is recalibrate our compass to ask ourselves, are the inputs that I'm receiving, do they sound anything at all like the voice of Jesus? And the fancy word for this, theological word, is lordship. And it's a real struggle because all of us, like we, we want Jesus, but we also want to live the life that we want to live. And lordship is basically this idea that eventually at some point, the voice of Jesus and the corrupted desires of my heart will come into conflict daily. And in that moment, we've got a decision to make. And I can either choose to reject Jesus and walk away and God will give you the freedom to do that. It's called free will. Uh, or we can redirect our lives, recalibrate back to true north. The Bible word for that is repentance. It just means turn around. Or here, here's what is happening increasingly more these days, not just non-Christians, but professing Christians, is let me reshape Jesus and his words to fit the life that I want to live. And we end up with this, this gets, this goes back to this deceptive question that our enemy threw out to our great grandparents in the Garden of Eden back in Genesis 3. It's simply this, did God really say? Here's how that question gets manifested today. Well, I know the Bible says this, but it couldn't possibly literally mean that. Like here's what the Bible means today, but here's what it means to me. Or you know what, we need to drag it kicking and screaming into the modern era. It is it is around that same question. Satan will go after the word and the words of God. And this is how you get a book like UnChristian. And for many of us, what the Bible teaches about all kinds of issues, but let's just take the top two, human sexuality and financial generosity. It is absolutely foreign to so many of us because our internal compasses have been and continue to be calibrated in the exact opposite direction of the wisdom of God's word on those subjects. And I just want you to know, there is a deceiver behind all of it. So let me kind of uh, give you an example of what I mean. Last week I mentioned the sexual revolution ideology of the last 50 years. And it encouraged and it even promised us more liberation and fulfillment. You don't need to be confined by this little box. You just do you. 
You just follow the desires of your heart. You have a right to do that. You'll be more fully human if you can just express yourself in all of those ways. And, and here's what we're finding 50 years into this is that the exact opposite is happening and the science on this is just now beginning to emerge. Here's what I mean. The research on the two chemicals that are released by our body during sexual intimacy, oxytocin and vasopressin, those things bring our attachment system online and it causes us to bond to another person. So now it seems that the more sexual partners you have, the less capacity your body has for intimacy. So maybe God knew what he was talking about after all. So when he says, hey man, save yourself for marriage, like a man and a woman in, in this covenant relationship, either God's being a prude or he's saying, uh, no, here's how to have the best sex of your life. The irony a few years ago is that while the Me Too movement was dominating the headlines, at the exact same time, Fifty Shades of Grey trilogy, a story about male sexual domination, by the way, was becoming the highest selling book series of the decade and one of the highest grossing film franchises of all time. Those two things were happening simultaneously. There is a deceiver behind all of it, promising you fulfillment and stealing your soul. Yet when we are challenged as Christ followers about giving a reason for the hope that we have, oftentimes we're flat-footed and we just don't know how to respond. And so right now, if you believe that Jesus is God's son, he's the only way of salvation, and you believe that the Bible is the authoritative word of God, you are what sociologists call a cognitive minority. And as a result, we are under constant pressure. Do you feel it? You feel everywhere, at work, in social circles, from the left and the right, from conservatives to progressives, to assimilate and follow the crowd. And Jesus refuses to be reshaped to fit our agenda. Like in the first century, when Jesus, during his earthly ministry, there, the political and social groups of his day, Pharisees and Sadducees, they constantly wanted him to be their champion. And Jesus refused to do it. Jesus refuses to be a poster boy for our agenda, a champion for the lifestyle you really want to live, or a means to your political end. Jesus did not come to take sides, but in the words of the great theologian, Conor McGregor, he came to take over. So if you remember from our short history lesson from the Old Testament book of Daniel last week, Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are exiles in a foreign land. Yet they resolved to live for God in an ungodly culture. King Nebuchadnezzar wanted to indoctrinate them into the ideology of the Babylonian culture. And so they found themselves at odds with the culture, but they chose to live their lives in a way that was distinct. That was markedly different. And as a result, it was winsome. It like earned the respect of Nebuchadnezzar and the other Babylonians. In other words, here's what they did. They allowed the character of Jesus to be on full display in their lives. And that's always winsome. And it turns out that America 2021 AD has a lot in common with Babylon 600 BC. And Daniel, just like uh, Daniel and his friends, you and I as a Christ follower, we are exiles in a foreign land. And our citizenship is in heaven. The word for this is an ambassador. An ambassador is somebody who is a representative of their nation, their, their uh, country in a foreign land. They are in that land, but they are not of it. They are representing the values of that land. We are here to represent the values of the kingdom of God that is coming into this world, by the way, that God loves and he died for. So we don't like resent it. We don't rage against it. We're not fearful of it. Our heart is broken in compassion over the condition of it. And the Barna Group called this cultural moment that we're living in right now, digital Babylon, which means this, prior to the internet, like when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, like in order to feel this kind of pressure of being in exile, you had to like go to like a liberal university or move to a world-class city like London or New York. But today, as author John Mark Comer says, all you need is an iPhone and Wi-Fi access. The values of Babylon are in our pockets and on our screens discipling us away from confidence in and faithfulness to Jesus 24 seven. And we have an incredible opportunity right now in front of us as Christ followers to shine brightly in a really dark world 
Or, and I'm afraid that maybe too much of this has happened in the last 18 months, we just blend into the darkness by mirroring the anger, the division, the confusion, and the fear that we see everywhere else. So why would somebody come here? Here's the question that is just like, I'm just wrestling with right now in this season of my life is uh, for people to say like, why would they come to be a part of a church? Why would you tune into a church if all you're going to see here and experience is the same thing that you see everywhere else? So like churches that are trying to reshape the words of Jesus to be more palatable to culture, like there's nothing distinct about it. Like I'm a little bit like taken aback. Like last week, if you were here, like Romans chapter one, I knew that was gonna be the, me- I, I, just the mo- I was just the most nervous about preaching that message out of this whole series. And I came here not really knowing what to expect. And I was just like, well, let me throw myself into traffic and see what happens. And it's been amazing to me that, that uh, in this last week, just the amount of encouragement that I've received from people. And that message has gotten five times the number of views online what a typical message does. And I'm trying to figure out why. Like, uh, there's only maybe a couple of reasons. I either suspect it's because, like, you like, weren't really listening, right? Like, that's always possible, okay? But the other thing is I think that people are rec- coming to maybe this realization that the ideology of our culture has promised much, delivered very little. And you're like, you got anything else? I am so empty. And I've chasing after all these promises of fulfillment and it's not fulfilling me. And you know what? Romans 1 sounds super, super weird and slightly offensive, but it's different. And as your pastor, I'm just under the increasing conviction as well as our team here that we just need to equip you to live in digital Babylon. To, to, to not only get you to Jesus, but to provide tools, resources, and encouragement so that you might stay faithful to him in the midst of increasing pressure not to. That's what the series is about. That's what the journals that we've given away to you is about, the little handout that we've given you. And listen, I would never expect the world to follow a set of kingdom values that they never signed up for. What I mean is like, if you're here, you're tuning in, you're listening, and you're not a a Christian, you're not a Christ follower, I wouldn't expect you to act like one. However, I think that maybe you would want to if you met more genuine, humble, authentic Christ followers who lived out those values in their lives. And I am a pastor. I am not a pundit. I'm not interested in legislating morality, but to help you see Jesus for who he really is. And some of you might be a little disappointed in me. Like after last week's message, you're like, Aaron, I thought you'd be more of a progressive pastor. And I am. I want to help you progress more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So... The potential good news, right? Are you guys ready for good news? Like, cause like we don't get that very often. The potential good news is that um, some of the darkest times in history usually preceded a time of significant spiritual reawakening. And it turns out that a study of Romans was usually involved in it. And so just to review chapter one, Paul painstakingly explains the corruption within the human heart that we all need to be saved from. We are all in the same boat. And he lays out how all of us have been deceived into exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We worship created things rather than creator God. Now in chapter two, he's gonna take aim at religion and he's gonna say that that is just as bad, if not worse, Because religion is just a flimsy cover for a heart that is just as sinful and corrupted as anyone else's. And for some of you, what I just said is disorienting you. You're like, what in the world did you just say? Remember, we have an enemy whose specialty is deception and counterfeit. And he is so sinister that his first plan is to get you to reject God. That's what he wants ultimately. And he's like, so let me just throw everything at you so that you'll reject God. Let me throw all your questions. Let me put some hypocritical Christians in your life that really hurt you. Let me throw COVID and cancer at you. Let me throw divorce and abuse at you and get you to be so angry and hurt and disillusioned, you'll reject God. That's his plan. If he can't get you to do that because you're just so stubbornly holding on to belief in God, here's what he'll do. He'll just make you religious. And it is one of his most sinister forms of deception. That's where this comes into play. 
And I want you to take, don't, don't read it now because I've worked far too hard on this message for you to, you know, be reading this, right? So take this with you and just read it later this afternoon and just pull it out occasionally and just rehearse it because it'll help you see the difference between the gospel and religion. Now, remember that the church in Rome was very similar to our church today, massively influential, incredibly divided. And the division primarily was over the fact that half of the church in the church in Rome, they had their internal compasses calibrated towards Gentile and the other half had it calibrated towards Jewish. Now, for reference, every time Paul says Jew or Jewish in the book of Romans, you could sub out evangelical church-going Christian. And every time he says Gentile, you could sub out messy, cursing, ripped jeans wearing, ACDC listening, beer drinking folk who didn't grow up in church but came to Christ later in life. And they were at odds with each other. And the Jews would sit on one side of the room and they would point at the Gentiles and they would say, how can you call yourself a Christian and not observe the Sabbath and not change your diet and not be circumcised? And the Gentiles would come right back and they would go, how can you call yourself a Christian and be so legalistic and so confined by the Old Testament law and be such a jerk? And I might point out that maybe the easy solution for Paul when he writes this letter is he could have said, hey, why don't you start a Jewish campus and why don't you start a Gentile campus? But he goes, no, you need to be united as one body. And he says, the answer to both perspectives is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he takes aim at religious behavior in chapter two, starting in verse 17. Look at it with me. You who call yourselves Jews, evangelical church-going Christians, are relying on God's law. And you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You, you went to Sunday school. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. In other words, what he just said is you think you've got an edge on all the Gentiles because you grew up in church, attended mass, went to church camp, watched Veggie Tales, and participated in Bible Bowl. You've got all of this knowledge about God in your head, but the character of Jesus is strangely missing from your life. And there is a huge difference between having knowledge of and applying that knowledge to. So um, might be a surprise to some of you, I, I am not very flexible at all. Like I have super tight hamstrings, tight lower back, tight shoulder, causes problems everywhere. Don't email me your solutions. I've heard it all. Okay, so, uh, uh, but I'm working on it, all right? I'm working on it. And uh, my wife this summer, she came to me and she said, Aaron, there's this app that I just found. I think you'll really like it. She's like, it's all these like stretches and exercises and like it's these really beautiful people like stretching on a beach and stretching on a mountain. And it's like so inspiring. I think you'll really, really like it. And so I downloaded it and she's right. Like, I really, really like it. It's really, really well done. And I've used it twice. <laughs> so understand, like having the knowledge of God's word without allowing it to change the motivations of my heart is thinking that just because I downloaded the app, I'm now flexible. He goes on, verse 17 or verse 21. Well, then if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? That is a backhanded slap. You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? I'm going to bring some clarity to that in a minute. You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. Now, here's the thing. Paul is throwing out these uh, questions, and I'm sure that in their minds they're sort of answering it. Like, well, no, like I don't steal. And Paul would go, this is what he's saying. He's like, you're using religious behavior to cover up the motivations of your heart. So in other words, yeah, maybe you're not stealing, but you're not being generous. Same thing. Like you're not trusting God in that area of your life. Like you're not literally having an affair, but you're undressing that woman in the checkout aisle of Meyer, or you're having an emotional affair with an old flame on Facebook. Like you're not literally bowing to an idol, but listen, here's the temple comment. You're using God to get what you want, which is another form of idolatry. Well, Aaron, what do you mean? Well, if you've ever had this thought, and I've had it, this thought cross your mind, God, I'll give you my belief. I'll give you an hour of my time on Sunday. I'll serve you. I'll give you a little bit of my money. If you could just give me a steady job, decent health insurance, and a fiance before Valentine's Day. 
And if not, what good are you? That is idolatry. Here's how you know you've traded the gospel for religion. When you are trying to get more things from God rather than getting more of God. Even peace. Like, I just want more peace or, or I, I, just, uh, uh, I, I just want more forget. Like, listen, none of those things are bad. But when you want those things more than God himself, it's idolatry. Verse 24, no wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. In other words, that's what we hear so often in our culture today. Um, Christians are hypocrites. They don't actually live out what they believe. And Paul's saying the exact same thing. He's saying, this is another way of saying, all the waitresses, you know you just came from church, but you left a lousy tip. All the Gentiles, the unchurched, the non-Christians, who spend more than five minutes with you and they can see past the flimsy cover of religion to a heart that is just as much corrupted as anyone else's. And they're like, why would I go to church? That's just the same thing I've already got. And it makes them want to vomit. And by the way, it makes Jesus want to vomit too. He said that to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter three. He goes, man, I just wish you were all in or all out. I wish you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. And lukewarm followers of Christ makes Jesus want to puke. Verse 28, for you are not a true Jew because you were born of Jewish parents. In other words, you're not a true Christian just because you grew up in a church going home or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision because you went to church camp or Sunday school. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. That's, that's, that's um, beneath behavior. That's motivations. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced how? By the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. In other words, audience of one. Living my life for an audience of one. Now, Paul is saying, beware of getting just enough religion that it inoculates you from the gospel message. And that's a challenge for anybody that grew up in church. Inoculation means where you get a dead version of a disease so that when you're exposed to the real thing, you resist it. Tim Keller describes it this way. He says, it is possible to trust in Christianity rather than Christ. And this can happen in conservative evangelical churches. Paul is showing us a condition called dead orthodoxy, where the basic doctrines of the Bible are accurately subscribed to. In other words, you can regurgitate the gospel message, but they do not make any internal difference. There is an intellectual grasp of the gospel, but no internal revolution. In other words, when we have a pandemic, Christians are just as angry, just as fearful, just as divided, just as confused as the rest of the world. That's how you get that. And honestly, like, I don't know what is more difficult. I've been in ministry over 20 years, full time. I've been preaching 20 some odd years. I don't know what is more difficult in preaching. Helping an unchurched person see their need for Jesus or trying to help a church person see their need for Jesus because they think they already know and they're good. And usually they're a lot nastier with their criticism. If you've noticed, the preaching helmet is not up here this week. I've graduated from that. But preaching a message like this, I need a bulletproof vest. And there's one under here. Because what I've learned is that some of the most hurtful arrows have come from church-going Christians. One of the most difficult tensions to manage in being a pastor, and I've, and I've tried to wrestle with this over the years. Like I have, my heart just beats so hard for people that are outside of Jesus Christ. And I just want them to, uh, I don't want them to stay away from church because they think the roof will cave in. Like I want them to come. I want them not, I don't want to speak in Christianese where it goes over their head. Like I want to, as Jude says, smell a little like smoke when I come into the gates of heaven because I was so close to the flames of hell trying to snatch people away to get them to Jesus. And my heart just beats passionately for that. But I've taken so many arrows for that over the years because people think that I'm just all about evangelism and I don't want to grow disciples deep. And that has hurt so much. And there's this tension that we're all going to have to manage in our church. And I just want you to know what kind of a church you're a part of deep and wide. We're not going to do this false dichotomy thing of like, oh, we're going to leave the one and go after the 90, you know, go out, leave the 99 and go after the one. And you must not care about the 99. Like nonsense. Like there's this tension that we've got to face where we are seek. I would say that the best disciples are those who are seeking after those who need to know the gospel as well. But I'm preaching another sermon right now. All right. So, so 
uh, we turn the corner in chapter three and here's what Paul does. He knows he's just offended the religious crowd. I kind of like what I've just done. And in the first eight verses, Paul gets into this imaginary argument with what he thinks their objections might be. It's beautiful. And he goes, I would imagine, because Paul is a Jew, by the way, he's going, I would imagine, here's what you're thinking. In verse one of chapter three, well, Paul, what's the advantage of being a Jew then? What's the advantage of being religious if that's the case? And he would say, essentially, calm down. Great advantages to growing up in church. Great advantages to being taught the Bible stories. Great advantages to scripture memorization. Listen, just don't think that you're saved because of it. Look at verse nine. Paul speaking as a Jew says, well then, should we conclude that we Jews are better than others? No, not at all. For we have already shown that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, church and unchurched, are under the power of sin. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. Now, righteousness refers to our legal standing before God. Sin has ruined that. And it is this sobering reality that there is going to come a day when everything about who we are will be fully revealed and nobody's gonna look good. Nobody, like not just behavior behind closed doors, but motivations behind your heart. Just think of the best person you know, both maybe in history and today. They're not gonna look good either. Moses, Abraham, Daniel, Esther, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, Mr. Rogers, Oprah, <laughs> your grandma, right? Like you're gonna, grandma, I can't believe you ever did that. Like it's, just, like, it's, just, it's like nobody's gonna look good on that day. Verse 11, no one is truly wise. You might have more degrees than Fahrenheit behind your name. Doesn't mean it's translated into wisdom. No one is seeking God. You might go, whoa, 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 Paul, you just went a little too far. I'm in church right now. I'm seeking God. Are you? Or are you seeking what God can do for you? Because there's a subtle difference. Verse 12, all have turned away. All have become useless. In other words, sin has corrupted my heart. Even the quote unquote natural desires that I have are disordered ones. Remember our definition of total depravity last week? That you're not all bad. You've been created in the image of a good God, but you're not all good because you are sinful. It's this understanding that it's not my ignorance of God that gives me a hard heart. It's my hard heart that makes me ignorant of God. No one does good. Not a single one. Verse 13, their talk is foul, like the stench from an open grave. Now he's not talking about cursing here as much as he's talking about this, that what is in our hearts can be hidden for a time, but eventually it will leak out through our words. The most revealing thing about the condition of your heart is, is, is your speech. So start paying attention to your words. Gossip, slander, anger, pride, half-truths, rage, complaints. You know, sociologists say the number one predictor of divorce is the way a couple talks to each other. Not the words necessarily, but the tone, especially contempt, which is why this is just a free little piece of advice, take it or leave it. Uh, young ladies, you're looking for a man, pay attention to how he talks to his mom and you'll know whether or not he's the one. Young men, like you, you're looking for a lady, pay attention to how she speaks about her friends and other ladies, and then you'll know like what's really in her heart. He goes on, verse 13, their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace. They have no fear of God at all. That fear of God thing is the weightiness of God. What has more weight in your life? The authority of God or your own wants, needs, dreams, desires, and aspirations. It's like a scale. We, we put the weight on what we want more than on the identity of God. He goes, that's our heart in a nutshell. And then in verse 20, Paul tells us the function of the law. And when he says law, he's referring to the Old Testament laws. There were 613 of them. And then you could reduce it to the top 10, David Letterman style, the 10 commandments. So when he says this, this is what he's talking about. He says in verse 20, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. This next sentence is so clarifying. The law, all 613 of them, shows us 
how sinful we are. So following the law, in other words, trying to be religious, doesn't, doesn't cancel my sin. It just reveals it. The law of God functions kind of like a mirror, revealing to me just how sinful I am. And by looking at it, I see what the condition of my heart should be and how short it falls. But the law can't do anything about your sinful heart. The law is like an x-ray machine. An x-ray machine scans your arm to see that there's a broken bone inside, but the x-ray machine can't set your arm to bring healing. The law is like a thermometer that measures the spiritual condition of your heart. It is not a thermostat that can adjust it. So forcing yourself to act more righteous, forcing yourself to be more religious, like white knuckling morality, attending church more regularly is never going to change your heart. It will just cover up the corruption. And it always leads to one of two places, either spiritual pride because of what you managed to accomplish in comparison to the worst people you know, or utter despair because you can't possibly live up to it. And you walk away and say, that's too oppressive and repressive and confining. And neither one is the gospel message. You just rejected Jesus for all the wrong reasons. So let me see if I can illustrate this. Um, last week I, I came home and my uh, wife was uh, in the kitchen uh, with our refrigerator doors open. She pulled all the food out and she was steam cleaning the fridge. And it was like loud and it was, and honestly, there's this funky smell in the air. And she's like the hardest working person I know. She's just like in there, just like steaming. The fr- I've never seen this before. And so I walk in, I'm like, what are you doing? And she goes, well, some milk exploded a couple weeks ago. We didn't catch it. So all this milk drifted down to the bottom of the fridge and it hardened. And so when I tried to wipe it up, she's like, it wasn't coming out no matter how hard I scrub. So I have to steam clean the fridge in order to get rid of it. Now, I could have come along and said, why don't you just like, you know, hang a little air freshener up in there? Just kind of cover up the stench. You, like, you know, you're just going to have a worse problem on your hands on down the road. And the exact same way, that's what religion is. Religion is covering up the stench of our sin without a change of heart. And God created us to be righteous. Meaning, not that we would cover up our sin with religious behavior, but that we would allow God to get in there and do a heart transformation. See, we wouldn't need the law to do what is right. We would want to. See, you don't have to, uh, I don't need a law to do things I love. You never have to command me to eat chocolate lava cake (laughs) or take a nap or kiss my wife. No law required on any of those things because I just naturally want to do it. I, I, I love it. The law is only required when my corrupted heart begins to drift away from the righteousness of God. So listen, sin is not really an action as much as it is a condition. Sin is not a list of the bad things that we do. In fact, for you, a certain action might be a sin. And for another Christ follower, it's not. That's when it gets really confusing. It's what Paul calls like matters of conscience in his letter to the Corinthians. Let me just give you one random example. Alcohol. Right? The Bible does not prohibit alcohol. What does it prohibit? Drunkenness. Why? Because you do stupid stuff when you're drunk. And you are leaning on that as an addiction. And you're being filled with that instead of the Holy Spirit. That's why it says that. But the Bible doesn't say that you can't enjoy a glass of cab or a nice bourbon. Can I get a good amen? All right? So, so... So what happens, but, but, but depending upon who the person is, and this is where Paul says, hey, for some of us, we lay down our freedoms to do that because of our brother or sister who has this problem with it. It is a sin for them even to have one drink. So a sin is not an action. It is a condition. Therefore, the sinful things we do are a result of the corrupted hearts we possess. And no amount of remorse, regret, or repayment on our part will ever get rid of the stench, even on my best day. Sounds pretty stinking hopeless, doesn't it? Thank goodness for the next 10 verses. Verses 21 to 31, I think, in my opinion, are the greatest set of sentences in the whole Bible. Martin Luther called it the greatest paragraph in the scriptures. Tim Keller says this is the biggest transition in all of the Bible. And in a sentence is basically this. God can change us by becoming for us what we could never be on our own and doing for us what we could never do. 
And the little subtitle over my Bible, right above this section, says this, Christ took our punishment. And I'm so thankful he did. And I just want to read these verses, and I want you to notice how many times it says these words, made right. It says in verse 21, the, one of the greatest buts in the Bible. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. That is such good news. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. And people are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. And this sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. Now, what he just said there is, is a, been an obstacle for a lot of people. And they'll say things like, well, what about all the people before Jesus died on a cross? What about all the people in the Old Testament that didn't have the sacrifice of Jesus? Did God send them to hell? And this right here said, nope, he didn't. Jesus paid retroactively for their sin. That's how sovereign and good he is. And God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, which means he'll always do what is right. For he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Oh man, those sentences are so good. And the word here for being made right in theological terms is justification. And the way that I learned this growing up is this, just as if I had never sinned. See, if sin is the legal standing that I have before God, then he justifies us freely, meaning you don't have to pay it off, like no purgatory, he justifies us freely by his grace, meaning he declares us righteous through the finished work of Jesus on a cross. It is a pronouncement, not a process that is enacted when you place your trust in Jesus. And the prerequisite is simply the realization and recognition of our sinful condition instead of a denial or a normalizing of it. And so in verse 16, the day is coming when God through Christ Jesus, I'm going back to chapter two now, will judge everyone's secret life. That is one of the most terrifying sentences in Romans. What it means is that each one of us one day is gonna stand before the judgment seat of God, both Christians and non-Christians, both religious and unreligious. We're all gonna stand before the judgment seat of God. And it's a sobering reality that we will all face the stench of our sinfulness and everything will be exposed. Not just our bad behavior, but our corrupted motives, even behind good behavior. And we don't like that. I don't like it. In fact, we hate that. We hate the idea of God as judge. And you wanna know why? Because what you've been told and what I've been told throughout our entire life, we've been sort of conditioned to feel this way. Like, like when, when you sin and mess up, I become a judge. When I sin and mess up, I become a defense attorney. So you sin and mess up. I'm always like, man, how could you? I always knew there was something up with you. I sin. Oh man, you don't understand. There's an explanation if you only knew. And this is the most evident when you pull up behind somebody at a red stoplight and the light turns green and they don't go. I immediately become a judge. I immediately assume the worst. I'm like, man, they must be on their phone. They must not know how to drive. Like, they're they're going to make me late. This big selfish moron. And then, but if I'm at a red light and it turns green and I don't go and the guy behind me starts to judge me by honking his horn, I immediately become a defense attorney. I was like, you don't understand. I've got this important text I'm trying to tend to. You know, um, you know what, relax, Mario Andretti. We're all going to get there at the same time. <laughs> because when you sin, I become a judge. When I sin, I become a defense attorney. And this is why we hate the idea that one day we might be judged by God and found guilty. And do you know why this is? Because for the most part, if not all of your life, you've been told, AKA, had your internal compass calibrated to this. Doesn't really matter what you believe, just as long as you sincerely believe it. 
You're not as good as some. You're not as bad as most. God grades on a curve. I think you're good. Follow the desires of your heart. You just do you. Here's a participation trophy. And we are unaware of our sinfulness before a holy God. One of the clearest evidences of this is the most common question that people throw at me as a pastor for their unbelief in God. And it simply goes like this. Why would bad things happen to good people? So many assumptions made in that statement. Basically saying, well, you know what? I just can't get past the fact that if a bad thing happens to a good person, then God must be unjust, unaware, or unworthy of my affection and devotion. And we are assuming that we're good. In fact, uh, the theologian R.C. Sproul was one time asked this exact same question. R.C., why do bad things happen to good people? And he sat back, took off his glasses, thought about it for a minute. And he said, in all of human history, that's only happened once. And he volunteered. See, the cross... The cross was a demonstration of two primary things. We hated God enough to take his life. And God loved us enough to lay it down. And God is so just that payment for sins needed to be made. But he is also so loving that he knew we could never make the payment. So he paid it himself. And we are not mistakers in need of a life coach. We're sinners in need of a savior. And that is a stark difference. And so what happens when you give your life to Jesus is the most fair, unfair trade ever. You give Jesus your sin, he gives you his righteousness. When uh, Lindsay and I were dating, this was the car that I drove. She married me for my wheels. And uh, <laughs> like I drove a Honda Civic and it wasn't the cool one. You know, they had all tricked out in the first Fast and the Furious movie, but... This one, all right? And so this is what I, I, this is what I had. And then Lindsay's dad um, had uh, gone to a car auction and he had bought a couple of Chrysler LHSs. I don't know if you remember those cars, but uh, he gave one to her mom and one to Lindsay. And so this was the car that Lindsay drove when we were dating. And these were the cars that we drove when we got married. And a great trade happened. What's mine became hers, the Honda Civic. What's hers became mine, the Chrysler LHS. And any chance I could use, I'd be like, hey, honey, I need a little extra space. Can I borrow your car? You know, it's a, and so she got the raw end of that deal. And, uh, you know, so did Jesus. See, there's this like great trade that happens when you give your life to Christ is that everything that was yours, your, your, the stench of your sin, he took on the cross and he paid for it. And then he gives you his righteousness. So now when God looks at you, he sees a spotless, righteous saint. That's who, that's who you are. And I just want you to know, it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. This is open to you. See, here's the message of the gospel. You are so bad that Jesus had to die for you, but you are so loved by God, he was glad to die for you. And there are two deals on the table. You can try to pay off the penalty of your own badness and sin, and you'll never do it. Now you might manage to do it a little bit, but eventually it'll just lead to spiritual pride or it'll lead to spiritual depression because you realize you just can't do it. Or you can come empty handed to Jesus and just let him pay the penalty for your sins and let him regenerate your heart and give you brand new motivations inside. And you keep recalibrating your compass back to Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and his word. And in Hebrews chapter nine, it says, every single one of us are destined to die once so unfortunately, no reincarnation. We die once, we face judgment. What that means is that if you're not dead, God's not done. What that means is if you have still have breath in your lungs right now, there is still hope. And the spirit of God is beckoning you and calling you and saying, hey, listen, even on your best day, you don't even come close. So stop striving and just start dying. Die to me. Give your life to me, surrender to me. It is the best trade ever. And so today, what I wanna do is I just wanna pray. And I know that maybe some of you like, you don't know what to pray. So let me just be your guide through that prayer. And I just simply wanna ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. Closing your eyes and bowing your head has nothing to really do with it. Like, it's not that God hears your prayers when that happens, it's that it just helps you focus. And I just simply wanna pray over you and I just want you to make this prayer your own today, regardless of whether you're churched or unchurched, Christian or non-Christian. 
Father, we come to you today and we are so grateful for the gospel message that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And this is not a work that we might boast in it or be depressed by it when we can't fulfill it, but we rest it completely on Jesus. So God, I'm sorry for rejecting you. I'm sorry for blaming you. I'm sorry for trying to reshape you and your word to fit the life I wanna live. And I really do wanna follow after Jesus in every area of my life, not just to receive him as savior, but to follow him as Lord. God, forgive me where maybe the last 18 months has not been my finer moment as a human being, where I've just mirrored the division and the anger and the confusion and the fear that is found in the rest of the world. Forgive me where I've tried to politicize my faith and I've tried to make you a poster boy for my political convictions instead of being a citizen of heaven. Forgive me, God, for the friendly fire that I fired at other Christians within the body of Christ because honestly, I was hurting and hurting people hurt people and I just wanted somebody else to hurt with me. Father, forgive me where I've made this about other issues rather than keeping my eyes on you. Forgive me for making religion my idol when all along I should have been keeping my eyes on you. So today is a mark, is a line in the sand, like no more. Like today, like right now, we're not gonna allow the external circumstances of this world. We're not gonna allow CNN or Fox News to taint the way that we see this world anymore. We're gonna listen to the voice of Jesus and we're gonna follow you as exiles because our citizenship is in heaven. And we are not going to exchange the real thing for a cheap substitute. We're gonna hold on to the real thing. And so God, today I just give you my life and I'm super scared because I don't have all the answers and, and I, I've got so many questions, but I trust you right now. And I trust that your spirit will help answer my questions as I walk with you. God, I come to you today as a church going Christian, recommitting myself to you because I've drifted and I wanna come back to you. Thank you for your grace in Jesus name and in unity, we say, amen.